millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the My First Gig Podcast. Whoa. Hello. <laughs> Can you let me talk? Excuse me? Hello and welcome to the My First Gig podcast. I am your host, Dwayne Dugan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Once again, here to hopefully break up your week, break up the boredom, break up the ever-looming insanity. I began using the series number as like a direction on how far we've been in this. So this is series two, episode six. So I'm like, oh, we're six weeks in. And I'm not sure if that means I should think that, oh, how has it been six weeks already? Or should this actually be episode 45? You know, do you know those socks that you have with the days on them? Now, I have a load of those. As I've said in previous episodes, I'm in my mother's house for all of this. There's a box of socks here that I haven't had in like 10 years and... I only came down for a few days, so I'm like running out of socks and jocks. And I just put on the random pair of socks that I haven't touched in 10 years. And it said Saturday. And I looked at my phone and it was Saturday. And I actually felt proud and an achievement. Like those, I'm sure there's people out there who have the socks and they put the right ones on every day. And my God, I would go insane. Not sure whether that's mental or organized, but whatever little line between the two would drive me crazy but like it actually gave me a bit of a pickup I'm like there we go <laughs> not everything's dreadful I have correct socks on so even now saying it out loud I'm like no you are mental you're going insane the podcast isn't saving you my guest today is none other than Tom Rhodes Tom Rhodes has been around forever standing the test of time now in his fifth decade of comedy starting out in the 80s appearances on Jay Leno Comedy Central the Joe Rogan Experience and everything in between. Tom's no stranger to gigging here in Ireland. An absolute favourite almost every year at the comedy festivals here. I had the pleasure of hosting... I hosted... I think it was the last show of the Vodafone Comedy Festival. You've heard me mention it before. It's it's the only thing we have in Ireland to look forward to. And there's been no official announcement. But due to the restrictions, it's not going to go ahead this year. And I'm very sad. But... Last year at the Vodafone Comedy Festival, I hosted the final show of the weekend in one of the tents there, and Tom was on the bill. First time meeting Tom, great gigging with Tom. It was Tom Rhodes, Ashley Bentley, a local here, Joanne McNally, and Cameron Esposito. And then, of course, the world-famous podcaster Dwayne Dugan as the MC. Always the MC, never the bridesmaid. It was great to catch up with Tom again to talk his first ever gig. I'm sitting here as... You may have heard me being interrupted at the top by my assistant here, Kitty, my cat Kitty. She's asleep here next to me. And I've just realised tomorrow is the last day of her teens. So today's Wednesday, tomorrow Thursday when recording. On Friday, she turns 20 years old. And that's not in cat years, that's in human years. In cat years, I think she's approaching 102, 106. 
you know, so she's she's pretty old. She's enjoying a nice snooze now. She loves her snoozes, but like if you were 106, you'd do nothing but sleep either. But she still finds time to interrupt me in the podcast. Let's let's see how she's getting on. She's having a nice time now. So I was 12 when we first got her. So I've got a brother and sister, Katie and Pierce. And Katie is 15 years old. And Pierce is 12. 15 and 12, yeah. So like, Katie's been in my life longer than than everybody. My longest friend I didn't meet till I was 12. Later that year. Not that I like, not that I didn't have any friends. I was 12. We just moved around a lot. And now I only have like six friends. And... The one I've known for the longest, I've known for 20 years. But not yet. We would have met in September. So, Kitty, yeah, you've been around the longest. Her name wasn't always Kitty. Like, granted, you're thinking Kitty's a weird name for a cat. Well, no, it's a very suitable name for a cat. It's, I guess, a bit typical. But a couple of months before that, we got our second cat. My first ever cat was called Oscar. He was a fat, grumpy old man. And we got him when we were still living in London. So I would have been like eight years old. And he went missing for ages. We lived on a busy road down in southeast London. And he came back eventually. And he was walking funny. And we realised his tail was like really dragging. And like not going up and down. We took him to the vets and we were like, oh yeah, like his tail is disconnected from his body. It must have been like, they assume it was like a car ran over his tail. Which like was tremendously painful. So, you know, they, they cut off the fur and the bone and... He went around there and just with a little stump and then the stump would go up and down and he was happy out. But when we moved to, uh, when we moved back to Ireland, I went to live with my nan for a while. While my mother got settled in Cork and so Oscar came and lived with us and then I moved down but we weren't allowed to have pets so we were waiting. And then we got the news that Oscar had passed away and probably maybe 15 years later, I'm told that everybody in the family seems to believe I don't know if I can say this truthfully, but seems to believe that my nan killed Oscar. Not maliciously, but she didn't like him. So no smoke without fire. Hit him with a car. We're led to believe. So then we got a cast then later. Little kitten, brand new, called Kitty. She was mental. He used to sit on the back of the couch on like the head rest. Mum paid to have her neutered, paid to have all her whatever you do when you get a brand new cat. And then it just ran away straight away. Like first time it's allowed outside, gone. Off, off we go. So we went and got a new cat, another little baby. She's brand new. Call her Dot. It's very hard to call Dot out the back door. You can't go out and go, Dot, Dot. I mean, maybe you can, but it's just, Dot, Dot. So I just ended up keeping on calling her Kitty. Because she looked exactly the same. Brown tabby. All my cats have been brown tabbies. Short hair. Loved them. And, yeah, she was the best. And she's still here. And we've been very lucky. She's still very healthy. Like, you know, when I tell people that she's nearly 20, they don't believe it because she looks so young and she's got a bit of energy in her and she jumps up and down and runs around and she's not as, you know, she has slowed down in years, but she's not, she's not what you're picturing when you picture a 20 year old cast, you know, and even the vets and everybody, they're saying like, here, look, she's a, she defies the odds. I think I remember the biggest issue that we had was, I think my mother was in Australia and I was in Dublin and I came back from Dublin and we were going to go collect the cat from the vets. The vets also have like a a place there to like mind animals, like a kind of a kennel or a cattery or, did I make up the word cattery? So she'd been there for a little couple of weeks, you know, 
a kind of quite a long stay for her. And we went down and my mum's friend and my aunt were with me to come collect her. And we went in, got her from the vet, so happy to see her, bringing her out to the car. But the door on the cat box was loose, flies open, she jumps out. She doesn't know where she is. She's terrified. She hops up on a wall and goes into back gardens of houses. And it's like, that's it. She's gone forever. Searching, trying to jump up on the walls, running around, trying to see. No, she's gone. She could be anywhere. There's a busy roundabout. There's... You know, it's not this little quiet, there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of houses, back gardens, trees, everything. And then just finally, when we're really worried that she's gone, you just hear this tiny little meow. She's terrified, doesn't know where she is, answers the call, get her back in the box, and she jumps in the box this time. She wanted to escape the first time, now she's like, oh, look, maybe, I, maybe I should be in here for a reason. But other than that, she's been great, and she's having a little sleep now. And Yeah, Friday, Friday, May 1st. On the 1st of May, she'll turn 20 years old, so happy birthday, kitty. No, she's asleep. On the first day of May, she was breaking away when the moon came and sat on your shoulder. She was still young, not yet highly strong, as she needs to be when she gets older. I am losing my mind, singing poetry to a cat. I'm going to go away, introduce an episode. While I go and bake the best cat cake, how about you sit here and tune in to my first gig with Tom Rhodes. Oh man, I'm fantastic. Um, my mother was visiting me a month ago when all this stink ball of virus hit, and uh, we decided she should stay here with me and ride it out. Otherwise, I would have been alone in Los Angeles, and she'd have been alone in Florida. So um, I love and adore my mother, and I'm happy to be looking out for her. And then also I would have been, I think, more casual in my attitude about going out if she hadn't have been here. Um, but because she's uh, of advanced age, I uh, kind of do a combat preparedness when I go out. I got my little chemical mask. I got some little black tight chemical gloves and, um, you know, really wash it down when I get back, make her wait in the other room throw the laundry in the machine, jump in the shower. You know, it's like, um, uh, you know, real, real, real hardcore uh, precaution. Well, it's doing what we hoped everybody be doing. Washing their ass better. <laughs> but that's nice. I'm, 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 I'm the same. I'm down in my mother's house. I came down to visit basically, you know, before things got shut down and then got shut down while I was here. But it's, it's nice. It's probably, you know, it's the longest that I've spent visiting in the last 10 years. So it's a positives in it. Yeah, I think a lot. There's a lot of great things. I mean, for me anyway, like um, kind of similar. My mother and I usually only get a week at a time together. Mm. When I go visit her in Florida, or she comes to visit me, and this is kind of nice to have the uh, unabridged um, time with my mother. And then also, I think it's a really good time to be able to hug your mother during all this. There's all these horror stories of, you know, not being able to go visit family or if you do, it's like through a, through a glass or anything like that. So, yeah, and I think even a lot of mentally well-adjusted people are having a difficult time. I think the, the mental clusterfuck for a lot of people who are either alone or trapped with somebody they don't like, like, um, uh, you know, I read that domestic violence is, uh, is, is, um, is up and, they were predicting a great baby boom from all this, but 
uh, a more accurate assessment I read was there'll probably be a great divorce boom after this. I think people reala- realize if they're with the wrong person that um, they really need to <laughs> get their life in a different <laughs> you know? Yeah, like I think everyone's prioritizing now or will reprioritize what's going on. When did kind of lockdown happen over there? Like we're talking like 14, 15 to March, I think it was, was it? Well, you know, I'm in California. California was um, way ahead of the rest of the country. Okay. So um, they canceled everything on March 13th, which was the Friday the 13th. All the comedy clubs in Los Angeles got shut. Everything got shut. You know, they said no nightclubs, no restaurants, no bars. Uh, so I think it was that week. It was um, somewhere, but 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 we were in California. They had made the lock. I think that's when they made the whole state lockdown. A couple of days or a week before they had locked down San Francisco. How are you finding not performing and not not working as regularly as you're used to? Uh, well, you know the good thing for me is you know I'm normally on the road at least two weeks a month. Yeah. And I've wanted to spend more time at home. So it's actually kind of nice not to be going to the airport every week or every other week to to go fly somewhere and do shows. And fortunately for me, uh, I'm editing my next album. Oh, very nice. Which my last album was Around the World, where I recorded it in 24 cities around the world. Took me two years to, uh, to record it. It starts in Paris, ends in Jerusalem. There's, there, I got Dublin, Galway, and Belfast on on the Around the World album. But last year I did this theater tour of England, Ireland, and Scotland, and uh, I'm editing that right now. And that album is going to be called The Honky Motherland. Okay. And uh, it's really nice to be. Li- I'm listening to these shows every day, and it's really pretty beautiful to hear even though i can't perform right now i'm really enjoying hearing the roar of these theater crowds um when like a laugh really hits so uh, i'm kind of getting my fix that way that's very nice yeah it's 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 amazing how like separated it can be even just after you know it's been a month and a a couple of days and simple things like even just hearing a crowd together might sound odd or in other ways nice and comforting yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like the, I mean, I, I, you know, I think a lot of things are going to change. I think a lot of great things are going to come out of this. I'm uh, an eternal optimist, um, but I, I think it's 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 a good time for everyone in the world to recalibrate and reassess the things that are important in their life. But the point I'm trying to make is, like when September 11th happened, I was living in Amsterdam. So like the world kind of freaked out. I remember what Europe was like after that, but that was really like kind of like the collective experience of the United States, like the changes that really happened and what people were experiencing. The thing about this experience, the unique thing about this is that everyone in the world is ex- is experiencing this exact same collective experience together. So like everybody in the world is on lockdown. My, my, my mother's from Argentina. She's been talking to family there. I've been talking to friends of mine around the world. And everybody is, you know, locked in their little uh, abodes and hovels. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, 
yeah, it's just a, it, it it we'll see how, how everybody's going to how this is going to react in the comedy world and like uh it, it is kind of unique that everybody has the same experience and um i think it's it's kind of a, an epoch in um in time I, I i'm excited to go back and i'm excited to to um recreate the next phase in my life because everybody is going to be recreating the next phase in their life. It's, it's hard to predict, but I'm going to take your optimistic look and go, yeah, I think it's going to be exciting what's happening next. We're going to talk about your first ever gig, first ever time on stage tonight. But before we do, I want to ask you, if I say to you, what's your first memory of comedy? What comes to mind for you? Richard Pryor. My father was a huge Richard Pryor fan. And my dad loved stand-up, but Pryor was his dude. And my dad had uh, tons of Richard Pryor records. I remember we had vinyl records. My dad loved Pryor and Bob Newhart. So I remember we had those vinyl records in the house. But my dad had, uh, I don't know, I don't remember if they were cassettes or even eight tracks, but I remember driving around with my dad as a little kid and my dad listening to Richard Pryor. So my first comedy memory is being a little kid and you know like you didn't have to wear seat belts back then and i remember i when i was like four or five driving with my dad i would actually stand next to him and i would have my arm around my dad as he drove you know no seat belt on if we'd have gotten a car accident i'd have been uh killed against a windshield or gone through the windshield but i remember driving around and my dad with my dad listening to these Richard Pryor tapes. And, you know, I didn't understand a lot of the adult themes and stuff like that. But the thing that hit me as a kid was when Pryor would animate animals. Like he did the thing about uh, his girlfriend broke up with him. And then the dog came up and talked to him on the way out and said, you know, hey, Rich, it's been cool, but you were a little tardy with the food and uh, left a little something for you to remember me by behind the couch. And then there was the, the thing with the, the monkey in the backyard and the, the neighbor's dog. And then when he went to Africa, he like animated like how the cheetahs were when they were running. So that's the thing. When I was a kid, I remember that was the thing that I loved the most about Pryor was the way he would animate animals and give them a voice. Um, so that's, that's really my first comedy memory is, is driving around with my dad listening to Richard Pryor. So stand-up's been like, you've been aware of stand-up as, lo- as almost as long as you can remember. Yeah, my whole life. And so um, my dad took me, my family's originally from Washington, D.C. Hmm. And my uncle tried to do open mic night comedy for one year in D.C. 1978, I was 11 years old. And my dad took me to see him and it was at a club called L Brookman's. It was the first place to do stand up, uh, like club to do stand up in Washington, DC. And the entrance was next to the stage. And the show was in progress when we entered. And I was wearing a Washington Redskins jacket. That's the football team of DC. And the comedian on stage grabbed me, pulled me on stage, and he interviewed me like I was the coach of the Redskins. And I was 11 years old and I just gave little bashful, dopey, 11-year-old kid one-word answers like, yes, no. But I'll never forget standing on that stage 
and seeing all those happy people with their heads thrown back in laughter and all the teeth in their mouth. And I know I've, I've, I know that I've romanticized the memory, but in my mind, it was all of humanity. There were black people, there were uh, Latino people, there were Asians, there was every kind of flavor of humanity uh, laughing in this, you know, club. So my idea of stand-up was that when you're on that stage, you're talking to the world. So from, you know, and then we, we sat at the bar and I remember sipping Cokes and watching all the comedians that night. And it just seemed like this magical world where these, and these guys were like wizards. They could get up there with words and ideas and like make a whole, this whole room full of people laugh. So from that moment onward, I never wanted to do anything else with my life. And I became a student of stand-up comedy. I, anything I, like Saturday Night Live was on. I remember staying up late watching SNL on Saturdays. Uh, Johnny Carson was back then, was on nightly during the weekdays. And I would, he always had stand-up comedians on. Whenever there was a stand-up comedian on, on the talk shows, I'd be sitting in front of the television. Uh, HBO had these hour specials. So that's another thing I did with my dad. My dad and I would would get excited whenever there was an hour special by a comedian, and and we watched all of them, and 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 we would talk about you know what we liked that the comedian did, what we didn't like, you know, uh, we really analyzed them together. That's that's interesting because like I guess at that age to get that experience, it, and from a young age you've been listening to these tapes and hearing these cassettes and stuff like that. I'm thinking now, from that moment at 11 or 12, you didn't want to do anything else with your life. How important do you think it was that your uncle was doing this, that I guess for someone that age, for you to realize that it was something that you could do later on? Because I guess if, if he wasn't there, it might have been so a bit too far-fetched or something like that in, in, in a child's mind. Well, I, well, he didn't stick with it, but I it, it definitely was the, you know, and I'm seeing these people doing it on television. I saw the people do it at the club and... You know, when you're 11 years old, you're not thinking about money and what careers, you know, is banking going to be better than comedy? I, I wasn't, you know, I just thought these people were magic wizards and everything in comedy. I mean, I got into Monty Python. Uh, I remember th- th- this was before cable television. I mean, there was like there was this fourth channel. You had the three main channels and then there was this fourth channel. And at night they would show. Uh, Benny Hill reruns, which, you know, when, you, when you're, you know, it's always good to see, you know, large breasted women be chased by a pervert. But <laughs> more importantly, after Benny Hill, <clears throat> they showed the Dave Allen show. And I remember watching Dave, I thought Dave Allen was a genius. I thought he was like, uh, like kind of the James Bond of comedy. He was, he always had a cocktail and a cigarette. And then uh, they showed Monty Python's Flying Circus on that same channel. And, you know, comedy movies, anything that had to do with comedy, if I could get my hand on a book or a magazine article, uh, it's, I had to read about it. Even if it was a comedian I didn't like, I, I just, um, you know, it, it, it was my path that I wanted to take. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Obviously, at 12 years old, you're not ready to, to step on that path yet. So, like... How long does it take you to to go and actually start start to perform then or, or what you have to do to, to, to reach that level? Well, uh, when I was 12, my family moved to Orlando, Florida. Uh, actually, we moved to Oviedo, Florida, which is uh, – it, it used to be a small citrus farming village uh, outside of Orlando. But Orlando grew up, it expanded, and they built a circular high, highway around it, and now my – Charming Citrus Village is a highway exit with Target and, you know, Chili's and Burger King and all that other kind of stuff. And the orange groves are no longer. But when I lived there, the high school that I went to was pretty small and everybody knew that I wanted to be a comedian. So I got to do everything whenever I got to do the morning and afternoon announcements, like in 11th and 12th grade. Uh, I got to host all of the pep rallies and the talent shows. So I was like, I was always working on jokes and I, I was always keeping notebooks and writing funny ideas and joke ideas. So uh, I, I really was lucky at my high school that I got to do. Uh, I, oh, and then most importantly, I have to say, I had this, um, this, this beautiful man, greatest teacher I've ever had, uh, black and gay. He was the drama and speech teacher, Mr. Martin. And uh, guy, he used to wear purple suede boots. What a cool guy. Um, he gave me the first five. There was a little stage in his class. And he gave me the first five minutes of every class to do my stand-up routine. So the deal was that I made with him was he would give me the first five minutes to, to do a little monologue. And then... Uh, I'd give the class back to him. And he told me if I ever interrupted him in his class, he would take that privilege away from me. So I was the most well-behaved pupil in his class because he gave me this stage time and it was great. I got to work on jokes. So my high school really, um, because it was a little country farmer high school, I got to get all this great stage time. And then a comedy club opened up in Orlando and when I was 17, on February 4th, 1984, I went to do my first open mic night at the, um, uh, it was called the Funny Farm at the time. 
So you're you're definitely not a shy child anyway. You and you're you're well used to getting up in front of people. The the funny farm opens up. Do you hear about the funny farm instantly when you're 17, or does it open up shortly? Before, like I think maybe it. I don't know. I think maybe it, it had been open for six months or a year when I heard about it. And like once you hear about it, is that in your mind? You're like, right, this is it. This is my chance. I'm off to do this. Well, you had to be 21 to get into the clubs, and right. I was 17 years old. So my first thought was, how do I get a hold of a fake ID? So in Florida at the time, back then, when you got your driver's license, they gave you a pink slip in case you lost your driver's license so you could have it, um, uh, you know, replaced. So my older brother uh, let me take his pink slip and he and he really drilled me on his personal information. I had to memorize his birth date, his social security number, all this shit. Uh, and I went in. And it, usually a fake ID has been doctored somehow, but this was an actual legal state government document with my picture on it, and it was flawless. So I got, well, actually, my, yeah, my dad drove me to my first open mic night because I didn't have a car, but uh, I had that fake ID. And, you know, basically, my, I guess my career started as a crime, but, uh, <laughs> um, but it was great because, I mean, I was 17. It was going to be four more years until I was going to be able to get into clubs. So I started out as a comedian uh, when I was 17 because I had this uh, th- this fake ID that was uh, indisputable. So you hear about this club. You get your ID. Like, Do you call up the club? Do you go down to check it out? What? How, how do you go about getting on stage? I called them first. And um, I remember you had to be put on the list. And they put me on the list and they said they'd give me five minutes for like my first open mic. And, um, <clears throat> you know, when you're starting out, I, you know, I, 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 uh, I made a, I had, I made a couple of props. I had a couple of props that I did. Um, I, you know, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just was trying to be funny any way I could. So I remember I made two of the props in art class. One of them was, um, a school crossing sign that I had a stupid joke for. Uh, there was another joke, this show called family feud. Yeah. Richard Dawson was this English guy and he was kind of a drunk and a pervert. He'd be like flirting with the moms, um, on, on this show. I, I, I did like an, and when you get an answer wrong, it's like, goes, eh, and there's like a red X. So I painted a red X on a piece of plexiglass. And I, I remember I did Richard, my impression of Richard Dawson, um, at a, at a bar, like trying to hit on a girl and, you know, it, it was just stupid. Um, and then what was the, Oh my God. Then this other one I did, um, it wasn't like, is it like a Kotex, like the maxi pad? I remember I stole it out of my mom's bathroom. Uh, it was, and it was, um, I did my impression of Mr. T who was popular in 1984. And, uh, it was just silly. But it was it, it took me my first uh, oh my god I, used to, I remember I, I did this other thing where I put I drew a UPC code on my stomach. Uh, the joke was it was just a dumb joke, but it, it was just funny that I took a sharpie marker and I drew on my stomach. Um, so I think it was probably the first two or three gigs open mic nights that I did where I had these props, and then I realized um, I. 
don't need to be carrying around props and shit. I, I, I watched what the other guys were doing and thought it was much cooler to not have props. But for my first open mic night, I, I think uh, for two and a half of my five minutes, um, I had a little prop to go with the joke. You say you've been performing at the top of class every day and you're waiting all this time, you know, for years this is what you want to do. You finally get told, right, here's your five minutes. How do you go about either deciding what goes into that five minutes or condensing stuff into five minutes or you probably had too much you wanted to say I'd say in that first that first time getting up there yeah I mean I had time to prepare but the difference was is I was telling jokes in the high school for teenagers and I knew I was going to the adult world so um you know I was nervous about that I mean you know I only had um teenage experiences at the time I don't think I did this on my on my first open mic night but it was a it was a really early joke that I did that um always got a laugh and i think my first year of doing stand-up it was probably like my strongest joke but um i told the story about i was on a date with a girl and we're parking after the date and we're making out and kissing and i made my big move i unbuttoned her pants and she grabbed my wrist and she pushed my hand away and she said if i do anything with you What's it going to mean? And I said, well, for you, a ride home. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, come on, it's, you know, from 2020 perspective, it's very sexist and, um, you know, um, you know, mill pig thing to say. But in 1984, when you're scraping to find something funny to tell an adult audience, um, that joke was a killer and it worked every time. Do you remember the first day? You know, you say you got a lift up there from your dad. Do you remember the day knowing that, right, you're going to finally get up on stage in front of an audience yourself? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it consumed my life. Like I said, I I, I even uh, in art class came up with some, that's where I made the props was in my art class. So it consumed every waking moment. I couldn't wait to do it. And I was uh, terrified and excited and the adrenaline pumping to my body. I'll never forget. There's nothing like your, I mean, it's like the first time you have sex. It's like, you know, you want to be as good as you can and last as long as you can. <laughs> and, um, I remember being absolutely terrified and then <clears throat> getting on stage and realizing that the spotlight was brighter than I had anticipated. And then that's, you know, something you got to adjust to. But, um, it felt like, being on a, a roller coaster because like <clears throat> as terrifying as it was the moment I got off that stage I couldn't wait to get back on and and ride that again and have that experience again so yeah and obviously it went well that night yeah and then it was kind of cool too because that local club which like I think the next year they changed the name to the Copa Banana which is still one of the worst names for a comedy club ever <laughs> um <clears throat> uh it was only local comedians. So there was like two guys that were the local stars and then the rest of them were pretty much open mic night level. But the great thing about it was it was local comedians and there was kind of a purity to it that nobody really knew, you know, how it should be going. There wasn't like the headliner comedian coming in like there were other comedy clubs around America. Um, what they would do was they would have a comedian 
and then a skit, and then a comedian skit, comedian skit, comedian skit. So every Monday they would do rehearsals, and you were encouraged to bring in a skit that you had written. And uh, and then you'd get to act in other people's skits. So it was actually kind of cool that, you know, and, and then once I got in, you know, I stopped doing all the high school things. I stopped going to football games. I stopped going to the dances because every weekend, once I uh, got in with this club, after like my second open mic night, I think they asked me to be a regular, um, I got to go to this comedy club every weekend. So uh, not only did I get to do my little 10 minute set every week or every Friday and Saturday, but I got to, to be in an act in a skit. Like there would be like parodies of commercials, different things like that. Uh, and and I, I really, I really found that really, there was an earnestness to, uh, to, to, to the whole thing. Cause, because nobody knew what they were doing that we had no rules and no guidelines. It's what you always wanted and what you'd been waiting so long for. And now here it is, you know, coming to life and you're, you're a big part of it. Yeah. And I remember, um, a skit that I wrote <clears throat> that I brought in and I, I got to do, uh, 1984 boy George was really big and, uh, Florida was a pretty redneck place back then. And, um, uh, people of ambiguous genders were not, uh, <laughs> was not, uh, I remember I, I saw, um, the B 52s open for the who at the tangerine bowl in Orlando and these rednecks in Orlando, they not only booed them off the stage, they, they threw their shoes at them. So the B-52s cut their set short because uh, they were performing in a, uh, a, in a hailstorm of thrown shoes. So um, that should give you an idea of uh, how Central Florida felt about Boy George also. So I did this character called Boy Tom. And I had taken a twister board, uh, you know, the little cloth. Yeah. Uh, board game for twister it's got all the big brightly colored um circles so uh, i cut a head hole and i made a dress out of it and i did this um i remember uh, i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm a comedian <laughs> i tell the jokes i do something you know something along those lines fantastic but i mean it was just, it was just fun and it was cooler than uh you know, hanging out with high school kids every weekend. I enjoyed, um, you know, and then also like God, Florida in the eighties, it was so much cocaine. People would, I remember, uh, in that first year or so, like people would come up, if they thought you did a good set, they'd shake your hand and there'd be like a folded up dollar with like a gram of Coke in it. And, um, I mean, I was still playing baseball in high school and I was terrified of drugs so um, whenever that happened to me, I would give my little folded up dollar with a gram of cocaine to the older comedians. So um, they all loved me. <laughs> I want to go back to that, that first night. It must have been cool having your dad there, you know, having, I guess, spent so many years listening to stand up and him introducing you to stand up and being a big fan himself to have him there your first time on stage. Yeah, I mean, you know, I really credit my father with, you know, he's the reason I'm a comedian. And mm. that was really great because after the show, and then he, he drove me to my second open mic night too. And I remember driving home with him and talking about it, talking about, you know, what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, um, 
mistakes I made and, and just how to correct it and how to, you know, um, stay focused and cool like a gunfighter and not let certain things jangle your nerves when you're up there, you know, and like, Oh, that joke didn't work. That's, uh, probably best to drop that one. And, Oh, that one really worked. And, you know, uh, things like that. Do you remember any of the names of the people who were around at the time or if any of them kind of, if you keep up with any of them as the years passed? I remember every one of them and, uh, none of them still do comedy. If I could take you today, uh, take you back to the funny farm right before you're about to go on stage, if you could take yourself aside and have a minute or two with you, what do you think you'd say if you had, if you had a moment to speak with yourself? Well, you know, uh, <clears throat> I, you know, I, it's the, it's the same advice I would give any young comedian. Um, don't be so hard on yourself. I think a lot of comedians are perfectionists and a lot of comedians beat themselves up, especially in your first 10 years of being a comedian. You know, you could have a great set and then like you're unhappy because one or two jokes didn't work. Oh, well, that thing didn't work or the new thing I'm trying didn't come out of my mouth properly. Um, <clears throat> I think the best thing you can do is be your own best friend. And how are best friends? They're nice to each other. They don't make each other feel shitty. So you got to be your own best friend in this business. And the thing that I always say, great advice that I always give people is you really have to be your own Bundini Brown. Bundini Brown was Muhammad Ali's corner man. Bundini Brown is the guy who came up with the float like a butterfly, sting like a bee uh, poem. And he was Muhammad Ali's corner man for his entire career. So you need to be that guy in your own mind for your own self as a comedian. And he's not saying you suck. He's telling you to stay off the ropes. You're the champ. Keep jabbing, champ. Throw a haymaker. Stay in there. Stay focused. You're the champ. You don't belong on the floor. You belong, you know, uh, throwing your heaviest uh, artillery and punches and stuff. So uh, your first open mic night it's the great thing. Everybody experiences the same thing. There's no shortcuts for any comedian. It's terrifying. And you just have to go on and get that first time out of your way. I mean, I think I was terrified for the first five years I was a comedian. But I wanted to be a comedian so bad, I fought through that fear. And then you, you, you start to tame it when you do anything consistently over and over. You know, you start to, to master something and get better at it. Well, I think be your own best friend is fairly good advice for anyone starting out. Tom, thank you so much for chatting about your first gig. Dwayne, you're a good man. I, I, I love working with you whenever I come to Ireland, and hopefully um, I'll see you again over there before too long, my brother. Until I see you, will you try and be your own best friend? I'll be my own best friend for sure. <laughs> Cheers, Tom. All right, my brother. Thank you. Be your own best friend. Good advice now. Good advice in the before. Good advice in the after. Good mantra that we could all follow. To quote RuPaul, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love anybody else? How about you start trying to love yourself by being your own best friend. Give yourself some advice. Cut yourself some slack. The world's going through a tough time. Easy to beat yourself up. Say no. You're doing a good job. Proud of you. Excited for the future. Can I borrow some cash? That's episode 16, season 2, episode 6, Tom Rhodes. Thanks so much for Tom Rhodes for being my guest. Go follow Tom at underscore Tom Rhodes. Go follow Tom and tell him 
that you're going to be your own best friend. He mentioned his album, Around the World. Go check it out. It's available now on Amazon Music, iTunes Music, Spotify, Deezer, and much more. And I think he's still doing Tom Rhodes Radio, so you can get that at allthingscomedy.com. I've been Dwayne Dugan, the world-famous podcaster. Follow me if you enjoy me at Dwayne Dugan on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, although the Facebook hasn't been updated in about four years. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Follow the podcast at My First Gig Pod to find out who next week's guest is. Before anybody else, go back and check out all the archives. James Acaster, Sean Walsh, Ardell Hanlon, Todd Barry, Stuart Goldsmith, Laura Lex, Catherine Bohart. Many, many more at MyFirstGigPod.com. Until next week, I've been Dwayne Dugan. This has been Kitty. Well, now she won't wake up. Come on, here. Say goodbye. Oh, that's a, that's a fuck off, not a goodbye. Okay, right. See you next week, guys. Toodles. It's the My First Gig Podcast. Whoa.